into something that we call good because it was there at the cross of Calvary. Our sin debt was paid and we can see that we are forgiven. Only you, Jesus, can turn such a silent Saturday into a Sunday that is filled with shouting and rejoicing because you are alive. We assemble here today, Lord, as people of faith, to celebrate the fact that we have a risen Savior who is in the world today. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. So all glory and honor and praise to you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. It is so good to have you here today. Happy Easter. Isn't it just a, a gorgeous day outside? And we're so glad to have you here in the room worshiping together. You know, our desire is not only to assemble people in the room, but to assimilate people to the life of our church here at Thomas Road. So if you'll just take a moment, get out your phone, turn your camera on, and scan the QR code right there on the seat back in front of you. It's going to tell you a lot about what's going on here at Thomas Road, including our Connect class, which is happening next week. And so uh, maybe you're just making your way back to church. You've been out throughout this past year, and you're wanting to get connected to the life of our church. This is a great way uh, to do that. But we're glad that you're here with us today. The story of Jesus is one of compassion. It is one of healing and love and forgiveness. And all throughout Scripture, when people would encounter our Lord, their life would be changed forever. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, the Scripture tells us that Jesus took his last breath. And then, of course, the veil in the temple was rent in two. And this was the words of the Roman soldier that was standing guard next to him as he saw the way that Jesus died. He said, surely this is the Son of God. When we encounter the living Christ, our lives are changed forever. He changed lives then, and he still changes lives today.
In a place called Golgotha, Jesus was nailed to a cross to die. His friends and family, watching in horror as he breathed his last breath. Was this how it would end? This Jesus, the King of the Jews, the promised Messiah, reduced to public death on a criminal's cross? He raised Lazarus from the tomb. He cast out Mary's demons. He taught his disciples everything they needed to know, and yet it is finished. What kind of savior is this? Our savior is played on the criminal's Darkness rejoiced as though heaven and long.
as we come together as a body of Christ to celebrate the fact that our God is not dead. Every other religion on the face of the earth, they go to places, they go to temples, they worship idols, they worship graven images, they have their deities, and here's what I know. Every single one of them are worshiping a person who is dead and gone, but today, our Redeemer lives. Because what we see and what we hear is this, this. People of God cannot be stopped by anything that comes that man might say. The body of Jesus Christ, we must shout out and proclaim that Jesus loves. Even the rocks will cry out, God's word says. That statement that we just walked through in Job chapter 19. Those words, I know my Redeemer lives. It doesn't make sense. Why it is that Job, a person who had gone through so very much, would utter those words. In the midst of all the crisis that he went through, the calamity that he faced day in and day out, and yet his words were, hey, it doesn't matter, because I know my Redeemer lives. You see, it doesn't make sense that he could say those words. Everything in humanity would tell you, how does that even make sense? That someone who could be going through so much could actually say, it's all good. I know my Redeemer lives. And yet that's exactly what Job said. This past week, someone asked me, so, so what are you going to be speaking on on Sunday? I said, well, you know, I was thinking about that resurrection. <laughs> but then he said, well, what passage are you going to use? I said, well, I'm going to be preaching out of the book of Job. He's like, how can you preach a resurrection message out of the book of Job? And I want to tell you today that of all of God's word, we're walking through God's word, it doesn't matter what book you go to. You can preach Jesus in whatever book it is. But in the book of Job, man, what a powerful statement. It's a great passage to have on Easter Sunday morning to talk about the fact that Jesus is alive. Mainly because of what we just together, as we sang together, I know my Redeemer lives. You know the story of Job, but he went through so much. Crisis after crisis. Now, he was a guy, let's be honest, it started off like everything was great. He was a guy who had been very successful. He made all kinds of money. He had all the money in the world. He had power. He had status. He had reputation. And because of that, man, people flocked around him, and they wanted to be around him because he had everything. In our minds, he would be a very successful person. He would be the kind of person that we would put on a pedestal, the kind of person that we would celebrate in our culture, someone who's just like really got it all together, doing great, has everything that you could ever want. And one day, Satan went to talk to God. And that conversation that went something like this, he said, you know, Job over here, I know he worships you, God. You know, I, I know he follows you, but come on, why wouldn't he? He's got everything. He's got all the money that you could ever want. He's got power. He's got friends. He's got stuff. He, why wouldn't he worship you, God? He's got everything, and of course he would worship you. And God said, okay, so, so here, why not this? How about if I let you take away everything from Job except for his own life? And why don't we see what happens then? Now, you know the story. We've all been there. We've all read it. So Satan began to peel away all of the success. He began to, to chip away at the, at the resources, at the money, the power, the status, and the fame, and the friends. And pretty soon, Job was left with literally nothing. Someone who lost all of his money. His family was gone. His friends had deserted him. And his own health was failing. And he was sitting there in all of that tragedy, and all of that heartache, and all of that heartbreak. And yet, Bafflingly, here's what he had to say. Hey, I know my Redeemer lives. You see, it doesn't make sense, but that's the kind of thing that we can learn from a man like Job. Because let's be honest, every person in this room, you either have been there or you are there, or I promise you one day you will, where it's going to seem like everything is falling apart. Job 
had lost everything. His friends had abandoned him. In fact, David Klein had, had this to say about the situation that Job found himself. He said, wherever he, wherever Job looks, he finds himself isolated and alienated. And it is God who has caused this, not directly, but through making him suffer. For Job's suffering means to everyone who knows him that despite everything that they thought they knew about him, Job has been a dreadful sinner. It is dangerous to associate with such a, a wicked person. Now you know the story, right? You know what happened with Job. After all of this took place, his friends had rejected him. He was being ridiculed. He was repugnant to them. They didn't want to be around him. Well, except for a few. The rumor mills had started. And people all over that land would say, listen, hey, did you hear what happened to Job? Did you hear the situation that he's going through? Did you hear the story? Yeah, man, I wonder what he did. I wonder what problems he caused. I wonder how he got there. You know, I bet he did this, and I bet he did that. Man, the rumors were flying everywhere. I'll bet you Twitter and Facebook were just like going crazy over all the things that Job had done. And so his three friends came, and they had conversations with him. And they came and said, listen, we're here to help, right? We're here to, to bless you. So you got to tell us, like, what have you done? Because certainly, like, like, all this has happened, it's because of something you've done. There's some kind of sin. There's some kind of secret thing going on. Like, so we need we want here to help. Now, of course, they're not really there to help, right? Have you ever heard that? Hey, we're just here to be a blessing. We're just here because we want to pray for you. Yeah, that was baloney. They were there because they wanted the inside scoop. They wanted to know everything that was going on so that they could continue the narrative, continue the story, so they could let the gossip continue to spread. And so they were sitting there like, what happened? Even Job's own wife came. And we know what she had to say. She came and said, hey, why don't you just curse God and die? I remember many years ago, Jamie, you'll remember this, whenever my dad would preach from the book of Job, he would say, listen, I don't understand why God didn't take her too, right? <laughs> because his wife even came and said, just curse God and die. You've got no reason to live. And yet in all of that, Job learned a very powerful lesson that I think all of us need to learn today too. What he learned is this, is that there is hope in our loss. There's hope to be found in the most difficult moments of life. In the loss that we all experience, there is hope. Look what it says in Job chapter 19, verse 23 and following. It says this. This is Job speaking, by the way. He says, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Now in the first part of that passage, in the first few verses there, 23 and verse 24, what Job is trying to say is, listen, man, if only people understood. Have you ever said that in your own mind? If people only really knew the real story. If they knew like that I was a good person and I'd done all the right things and I'd said all the right things, if people could only know. And he said, if they could be written down in a book so people could read it. He goes on to say, if it could be inscribed on a stone so all the world could come and know exactly what it is that I've done. Because I've done all the right stuff. But interesting, Job knew that his actions. Job knew that what he had done in his life, he knew that his own words, he knew that being a good person, he knew that doing all the right things had absolutely nothing to do with hope. Because he went on to say, verse 25, but listen, I know my Redeemer lives. All that stuff about my life, all the things that I've done, here's what I know, that stuff means nothing but Christ lives. Now in our journey... Isn't that something that we need to grab a hold of to? Because you know, as well as I do, everybody in this room, we all have walked through these moments of tragedy. We've all walked through these moments of heartache and heartbreak. We've all had those moments of loss. And it's in those moments that we need to understand, that we need to grab a hold of the truth, that our hope and our future is not found in what we can accomplish, thank God. It is found in what Christ has already accomplished. Job went on to say, listen, I know my Redeemer lives, and even in this failing body, and you know the sickness that he was experiencing, his skin was literally falling off of his bones. He knew that he was going to die, and he said, listen, even though I know I'm dying, this body is failing, I shall see God. 
Man, what a great lesson for us, especially on an Easter Sunday morning. When life is out of control, when sorrow is everywhere, when pain is overwhelming, our Redeemer lives. If you've been reading through God's Word with us here at Thomas Road, we've been reading through all of God's Word, and we started in January, going through June, of reading all the, God's, all the Bible, all of God's Word in six months. And you know, last week we were in the book of Job, and this week we've been in the book of Psalms. And it's interesting that after we read what Job experienced in the middle of his calamity, in the middle of his tra tragedy, and his crisis, where he said, listen, I know my Redeemer lives. I know that's where my hope lies. It's interesting that King David had the same experience. Now, we know King David was a person who God had anointed, but yet in his life, in his journey, he even started off where, where he was attacked. When he was just a young boy, when he went to work for the king, the king got jealous over his success. And so you know the story, right? He wanted to kill David. And so thousands of people were chasing David all through the land, all of Israel. He was hiding in caves. He was hiding wherever he could hide because he was in fear of his own life because King Saul wanted to kill him. Later, when David became king, and David is now king, even his own sons wanted to get him off the throne. They wanted to depose him and take over themselves. One son ended up murdering another son. He lost another son uh, as a young infant. And we see just tragedy after tragedy, many of which, uh, many situations of which were caused by his own actions. But yet, moment by moment, situation by situation, David was in crisis after crisis. And it's interesting. That just as Job said what he said, listen to what King David wrote in the book of Psalms in verse in chapter 16, where he said these words, Therefore my heart is glad. Figure that one out. In the most difficult moments of life, therefore my heart is glad. You see, what David learned is this, is yes, there is hope in our loss, but he also learned there is hope in our heartache. Let's keep reading this passage in Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in, and here's that word again, hope. Why? Listen to this. For you, God, will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Your, uh, you will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David, going through all that David had experienced and facing all the things that he would experience in the days to come. And here's what he had to say. Listen, I know my Redeemer lives. He's talking about himself in that passage we just read. He said, listen, I know that God is not going to allow me to die and to send my soul to Sheol. He follows it up in the next sentence by saying that I know you, God, will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, some scholars would say that David really wasn't talking in a prophetic way. Some scholars would say that David was not actually kind of projecting forward to the coming Messiah. That he, he wasn't talking about the fact that, that Jesus one day would come as the Messiah and that he would die on the cross and, and that God would certainly not allow him to be in the tomb, in the grave, and that he would begin, his body would begin to decay and body would begin to rot. And David said, I know that's not going to happen. Now, some scholars would say, no, David was actually talking about himself. He was putting himself in kind of a, a special category because he was God's anointed, that, that God was saying, like, like, you're special, David. And so some people would say that David was talking about himself, like, I know God's not going to let me die. I know God's not going to let me decay and rot in the grave. I know that because I'm special. I don't believe for a minute that's what David was saying. And the reason is because I know that David didn't write these words. The Holy Spirit of God wrote these words. God moved the hand and the pen that wrote these words. And that's why in the King James Version, the New King James and other translations, you'll see that your Holy One is capitalized because it's referencing deity. It's referencing God. It's saying we're talking about God himself. And so David says, I know, God, that you will not let your Holy One, the Messiah who is to come, I know you will not allow him to be corrupted, you will not allow him to decay in the grave. So in other words, what David was saying is, I know my hope is not found in what I've done. I know my hope is not found in my actions. I know my hope, hope is not found in my possessions. My hope is found in the fact 
that my Redeemer lives. You see, there's hope in our loss, and there's hope in our heartache, not because of what we can accomplish, not because of what we can do, but because of what God has already done through Jesus Christ. That's why we gather together every week, but certainly on Easter, to celebrate the fact that even though the world assumed that, that Jesus was dead and gone, and Satan assumed that his job was completed, Jesus walked out of that grave three days later victorious. That's why we gather together to celebrate the fact that our Redeemer lives. And so David made these statements. He, he uttered these words. And again, some scholars say, no, that's not what he was talking about. But I believe it was. And I believe the Bible actually indicates, in fact, that that is exactly what he was talking about. Because if we go over to the New Testament, when Peter was preaching a message in Acts chapter 2, he referenced what David had to say. Now understand the context of what Peter was doing. In Acts chapter 2, it was just hours after the Holy Spirit of God had descended on him and all the others gathered in the upper room. The Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised just a few days prior when he ascended into heaven. When Jesus said, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so the Holy Spirit came and now Peter was emboldened unlike he had ever been before. He had power, he had passion, and he knew that what he was doing and what he was about to do was something that would truly change the world because that's exactly what Jesus told him to do and it's what Jesus promised that he would do through him. And so in Acts chapter 2, Peter began to preach a message to the people gathered in, in Jerusalem. And listen to the words of this message. Listen to the power that is found, the passion that is uttered through these words. When Peter said this in Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 29, he said, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, talking about David, foreseeing this, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Peter was preaching this powerful message, and he quoted Psalm 16. He said, remember when King David, that, that uh, king that we all love so much, that beloved king of, of Israel who had done so much for all of us, the one by whose tomb that you walk by all the time here in Jerusalem. And you go and you kneel down there to honor him and to pray because of what David did for all of Israel. You remember that king? That king, remember, when you would go to the synagogue and, and the rabbi would open up the scrolls and he would read the Old Testament statements. And what he would read is, is that I know that you will not allow your Holy One to see decay. Will not let your Holy One see corruption. Peter said... That one that David was talking about, that one is Jesus. And he preached with power. And you've got to understand, as those in Jerusalem were hearing the words that Peter was preaching, what Peter was giving them is not only the fact that there's hope in their loss, and not only the fact that there's hope in their parting, but he was preaching that there's hope for eternity because of what Jesus said. All the people who gathered there in Israel that day, they were, I mean, they were shocked and astonished at everything that they were hearing from Peter. They were mesmerized by hearing the words of Peter. But, but understand this, they were also mesmerized by what they had been seeing over these past few days. Because they knew that tomb was empty. You see, all of Jerusalem knew that Jesus died on the cross. They, they watched what happened. They saw the storm that came when he gave his last breath. They knew that the temple that had so often and so for always had been revered. And they knew that temple had a separation between the presence of God and everybody else. They knew that that, that temple veil had been ripped in two. And so they knew that tomb was empty. So you can imagine over these last few weeks since Jesus had been risen from the dead, man, they were going to that tomb to see that empty tomb. It was like the Disney World of Jerusalem. 
I mean, it was like the tourist trap, the tourist attraction. People were filing through to see the fact that the same thing that Mary saw when she arrived on that Sunday morning, the same thing that, that, that Peter saw when he went into the tomb and he saw that, that Jesus was no longer there, the grave clothes were thrown to one side, the one that was around his head had been wrapped neatly and folded and placed where his head once was. They knew that that place was empty. And it didn't make sense because they had seen Jesus die on the cross. They had seen him be nailed to the tree. They had seen the blood pour from his body. They had seen him as they pierced his side with a, a spear. They had seen as they placed their crown of thorns into his skull. They had seen him as he uttered his last words and then he died. They watched as they took his body down from the tomb or from the, the cross and, and placed it in the tomb after they had prepared the body. They'd watched as they rolled that huge boulder in front of the opening of that tomb. And by the way, make sure you don't lose, the, lose sight of how significant that was. They rolled a boulder in front of the opening to that tomb. That must have been difficult to do. And then Pilate put guards there, soldiers there, and said, listen, guard this the best you can. Like, watch over this, because we don't want people stealing the body of this man. And as he laid in that tomb for three days on that Sunday morning when Mary came to anoint the body. Why? Because she assumed the body was decaying. She assumed the body was being corrupted because of death, which makes sense. It's, it's, it's human physiology. It's, it's nature. She came there to anoint the body of Jesus, and when she got there, that boulder had been moved. And the opening was, was clear. And Jesus wasn't there. Her Redeemer. So all of Jerusalem had had this opportunity of walking by. Again, man, you know it was like a tourist attraction. They were probably like selling, you know, tickets to park your chariot and your mules over here so you can get out and come in and, you know, buy a, you know, a one-day pass or maybe a park hopper, you know, so you can go to the top of the tomb, bottom of the tomb, I don't know. You know they were probably doing all of that. Probably like baseball, just a couple of days ago on their opening day, they probably people walking around saying, you know, hot dogs, get your hot dogs here. Well, they wouldn't have done hot dogs because they don't eat. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, Chick-fil-A, get your Chick-fil-A here, whatever, whatever it was, you know, back in that day. I mean, you know it was a big deal. So when Peter was preaching this message with power and with passion, he was saying, listen, that Jesus, that Jesus has risen. That one that David was talking about, he's no longer in the grave. He has come out of that grave, and it is him now that is at the right hand of God. Again, hearkening back to what David said in Psalm 16, that at your right hand, we find joy. And so Peter's preaching that message. Now listen, I want you to hear this. Look what happened when the people of Jerusalem heard the message, the sermon that Peter gave. Look down in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Peter finished his sermon by saying this, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know, surely, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He finished his sermon. Now notice the response of the people of Israel. And it says, now when they, the people, had heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter finishes preaching this powerful sermon there in the days following the ascension of Christ. And as they heard it, they were not sitting there talking about, well, I've been in church my whole life. I've done all the right things. Man, I've been in church. My grandparents were in the church. My parents were in the church. Listen, I was there nine months before I was even born. I was in church. They weren't talking about the fact that they've been faithful to church. They weren't talking about the fact that they, you know, they served in the synagogue nursery taking care of all the little Jewish babies. They didn't talk about the fact that they worked out in the, the synagogue parking lot on the cold and rainy days when you know people would come in on their mules and they would help them park their mules and, and fight over the best parking places for their donkeys. They didn't talk about the fact that they'd been good people, that they had been honoring others and taking care of others and loving others and, and meeting the needs of the poor and the destitute. No, they didn't talk about any of those things. The people didn't talk about their religion or their denomination or their actions or what they have been or what they have done or what they have said. Just like Job, those things don't matter. Here's what it says. They were cut to the heart. 
It went right to the heart when they heard this message. Because the message they heard changed everything. The message they heard was this, that Jesus, this one you crucified, the one that just a few days ago you were crying, crucify him, crucify him. That Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And he lives. When they heard those words, it wasn't about what they'd done. And it wasn't about the church that they'd attended. And it wasn't about all the things that they'd accomplished in their life. It wasn't about their money or their power or their position. It wasn't about their friends. They were cut to the heart and all that they could say, the only words that could come from their mouth in that moment was this. What shall we do? What do we do? You see, I'm afraid that in this day and age, in our culture, that churches all around the world are filled with people that have been so focused on their religion and so focused on their actions and so focused on the fact that they're faithful and so focused on their denominations and so focused on all of the things that we equate with being a follower of Jesus Christ that we maybe have never gotten to the place where we've said, God, what shall we do? You see, Peter made it clear. The only thing that you can do is not be good, not be Baptist, not be Presbyterian or Methodist or Pentecostal. No, it has nothing to do with it. Here's what you got to do. Repent and believe. And he echoed the words that Jesus had spoken just a few years earlier when he began his earthly ministry after he had been out in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And it says that in that point in Mark chapter 1 verse 14, now after John was put in prison, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And the words that he said were these, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he went on to say these words, repent and believe in the gospel. And so my question for you today on this Easter is not like how faithful that you've been and not how often you come to church, not how many times you've read the Bible, not how many times that you've served, not how many times you've been nice to other people, not whether you've been a part of a church your whole life. My question to you is have you ever gotten to the point where it literally cut right to your heart and the only thing you could say is, God, what do I do? Now Jesus answered the question. As Jesus said this, believe. Believe the gospel. You see, every person in this room, every person watching right now, every person listening right now, people who are seated on Main Street or in Fellowship Hall or River Hall or joined together on this, this Easter Sunday morning. Here's what I know about every single one of us. It's according to God's word, we all are sinners and need to save. And according to Romans chapter 6, man, the only Savior that can save us is, is Jesus. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so I just want to ask you that most important question. Have you ever come to that place where you said, I believe that I'm a sinner. And I believe I need a Savior. And I believe that Jesus died and that he rose again for me. So God, save me today. Forgive me today. I turn from my sin today. Save me, Jesus. And if you've not done that, there has never been a better moment than this one. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? In a moment, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And when I lead us in this prayer, it's a prayer that, again, just goes right back to what God's Word says. Where God's Word clearly tells us that if we believe that Jesus is God's Son, that He died and that He rose again, Romans 10, 13, that anyone who calls on his name will be saved. And listen, it doesn't matter whether you've been in church your entire life. It doesn't matter if you're a deacon or sing in a choir. 
It doesn't matter how good you've been. It doesn't matter how many great things you've accomplished. All that matters to be a child of God, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, is that you come to the point of recognizing your sin, knowing you need a Savior, and then crying out to God, save me through your son, Jesus. And so in a moment, I'm going to pray a simple prayer that is just going to ask God to do exactly what he desires to do, what he came to do. And so if you've never come to the place in your life where you prayed that prayer, as I lead us today, I'm just going to ask you for silence in this moment from your heart to God's silently that you just pray this prayer along with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me. I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. I believe that Jesus is that Savior. I believe that he is your Son. And I believe that he died and that he rose again. And I believe that the only way to find, find salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. So today, Father, forgive me of my sin. I turn from my sin today. Save me today through your son, Jesus. And help me to walk with you for the rest of my life.